So one last announcement is what it's kind of diving into uh, this morning and then for the upcoming uh, weeks and a few months. We are diving into the plans right here on the screen. You see it, right? We've been talking about this. The plan basically is we're going to be going through as a small group study and a small group campaign at Vintage. Every single person who's here, we want you to dive into the plan, this, this study that we're doing of Ephesians. And when we talk about the plan, I mean... Just simply stated, right? Like God has a plan for us. God has a plan for you. And it's really important you differentiate. Like God has a plan for you individually, but honestly, in the context of that, then God has a plan for us. And really the plan is about that. As you, as we dive into this letter, the, the Ephesians, right? It's, it's going to be talking about this plan and, and naming this plan that God has for you individually, but yes, also as the church. And, and the reality of this for us, and we understand this, is that how many of us either don't know the plan or are not walking in the plan that God has for us as a people? And, and how much of the church is, is or is not walking, understanding and engaging the plan that God has and, and even as I say that, I, I, I wonder what you think about, right? Like, I wonder what you think about. I wonder if I say the plan of God, I, I think if we went around the room, we would all get possibly similar, you know, sometimes we go, Jesus, right? This is what you do at church. Like, what's the plan? Jesus. You're like, yes, that's kind of cheating, right? But, but the idea is that there's this plan and, and I wonder if we know it. I wonder if we're experiencing it. I wonder if we're walking in that specifically as it's related in the book of Ephesians. And so letter to the letter of Ephesians. So with that in mind, we want all of you to engage. And this morning, I'm going to kind of dive into the very beginning. We're going to launch this morning, but I want you to hear me say this. We are desiring and longing that every single person at Vintage, that means you, would be part of a small group, right? A small group is meeting during the week sometime, whether it's as couples or as individuals or as it's the same gender, whatever it may be, that you say, yes, for the next 12 weeks, man, I'm going to, I know my schedule, right? I told you my schedule. I got five sports being played between my girls right now, right? One of them's fishing. My, my, my daughter's part of the bass fishing team, praise God, right? I get to be the boat captain, praise God. And so uh, it's a lot of fun, right? But we got a lot of stuff going on. I mean, literally, we're all sitting there for 30 minutes yesterday looking at our schedules, trying to mix and match. And I look at it and go, God, I don't have time for a small group study, but I know that you have it for me, so I need to make it a priority. Everybody say priority. You know what that means, and that's what I'm asking. If you say Vintage is your home church, then I'm asking that you would make it a priority and get in a, a small group. Scott will be outside today. Robert, Robert will probably be there, too. I'm not real sure who's going to be back there officially, but they'll probably both be there. Love to talk to you about small groups. Love to talk to you about what days they're being held, and and I'm just asking that you would, I'm just asking this, if I can say this, let's not make excuses. Let's just engage it, right? It's, it's just, it's just for 12 weeks, right? I mean, it's just 12 weeks. And so make it happen, be engaged. And I, and I honestly, I, I know confidently, I've already looked at all the stuff we're diving into. Man, it's going to be rich. It's going to be profound. And so I'm asking you to dive into it. So with that, this morning, we get to do the fun thing. We get to, we get to launch, right? And you can't study a, a letter uh, unless you kind of know the background, right? In the, in, in the scripture, you know that there's always a writer and there's always a recipient, right? There's always a writer and there's someone that the writer is writing to. 
And, and you really can't dive into what something is saying unless you actually dive a little bit into who the writer is and who the recipient is. Because, you know, how many of you have ever, like old school, you've written a letter, put it in an envelope, and you've mailed it to somebody? Raise your hand. Everybody raise your hand, right? Real confidently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's the thing. It's like if I handed you a love letter today and, and you read it, you know, oh, that's really sweet and cool. But what if all of a sudden I said, you know, this is between your grandmother and your grandfather? You go, are you, are, are you serious? And those who have feelings, right, all of a sudden, like tears would well up, right? Those who are stoked would go, oh, that's, that's great, thank you, right? No, it's like, you, know, like you, would, you would be moved by that. You would be moved by the fact that I, I, I know some of the story. and I, Really? I mean, and you go back, you reread it, and you would spend a lot longer reading it because you would now make personal the writer and you now make personal the recipient and so when you read it it's not like you're you're not reading it as if it's written to you but you're reading it first to recognize there were two people who were writing and receiving and that's powerful and then secondarily it impacts you so let me just say this real quick in Bible study. The great danger of Bible study is you never know who's writing and who they're writing to and actually what the purpose of the writing was for. Like you go back and read the book of Psalms and it's like, oh, that's really great. And you make sure you feel good. But like David's dying, right? Like he literally thinks he can barely make it. And all of a sudden you're like, yeah, I mean, David's writing to God. And then, I, and then have you ever wondered how God responded to David? Because whenever you write, God doesn't just sit there and go, thank you for the letter. No, he responds back. And so have you ever thought about the fact that David wrote something and that God responded? Like my point is this, you have to make the Bible personal between real people. And so Ephesians is that. And so this morning, I'm going to, we're just going to kind of give you the background of it and kind of talk about Ephesians, the nature of like of writer and recipient or possibly recipients. Let's find out here in a few minutes, right? But the nature of diving. And so the starting the starting point is the writer. So we've been like for eighteen over eighteen centuries. Everybody said yes. Paul is the writer of Ephesians, right? And then around eighteen twenty seven ish to fifty. All of a sudden, critical thinkers, and critical thinkers simply means people who said, okay, I'm going to take the emotion out of this and just kind of look at it for face value. Was it really written by Paul? They weren't trying to be mean. They were just like, let's just take everything we believe and say, all right, is this true? Critical thinking, it's always healthy to do. So they began to read and look at stuff and go, hmm, it's really interesting that Ephesians is different than every single one of Paul's letters. Like it's literally uses different language, like whoever's writing it is using some different language, not a ton of different language, but about nine, like 10 percent different language. And 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 it's different in its form. Like if you read Ephesians, like there's nothing personal in there. There's no names that he's speaking to. There's no heartfelt uh, expression of love to, to the Ephesians and every literally every other letter, the writing that Paul has in, in the New Testament, right? It's like he's naming something or there's some major issue that he's dealing with, whether it's they're dealing with persecution or like in Corinth, they're dealing with being idiots in the church and their sin. There's always something that he's he's addressing, someone that he's addressing. And, and so the people came out and said, I actually don't think that Paul wrote this. 
And all of a sudden you're going, what's he saying? Because we feel threatened. Why? Because we've always felt that, that Ephesians was written by Paul. You're like, oh, man, is he going heretical on me? To leave vintage? No, it's like you have to just dive in and learn. That's the nature of it. And so did Paul write it. So my argument's going to be, if I had to go toe-to-toe with these theologians who are smarter than I am, and I'd say, hey, I believe that it was. Woo, right? I think that it was. I think what you have going on is a couple different pieces, and because what happens again is the language piece, the recipient piece is different. And so what that does then, maybe what we begin to say then is, and so let me say real quick about language. He uses different language. Specifically, one of the things he talks about in here, he's talking about the supernatural in a way that he never does anywhere else. That's just unique and interesting, right? And, there, and so, so rather than get threatened saying Paul didn't write it, go, hmm, if Paul wrote it, I wonder why he used different language. Like, is there a purpose? Is there a point behind it? Did he use different language to, to make a, because maybe he knew his, recipients. And so culturally speaking, he used language in a missional sense that made sense to them. My point is this, we have to begin to read for, for being, using our brains and using our hearts. Most of us go to the Bible because we want God to help us through something. And so we're like, oh, just speak a heart thing, speak a heart thing, make me feel better, make me feel better because we worship our feelings. Like have you ever, like do you recognize how many times you just go to God and make, because he want, you want, you you want him to make you feel better? That was not the intention of the Bible. The intention of the Bible was, yes, to speak life into our broken places and to actually use our brains to engage it and to understand it on a deeper level. Right? So that's what we're going to do as we study through Ephesians. It's kind of opening up. And so in this, we're like, well, did Paul write it? And I would look and say, do you, do you, so you believe that Paul wrote it. Do you know why? And you can't say because my pastor said so. Like, do you know why? That's not fair. You can't say, well, my church said that. I grew up like that. Who cares? Is everything you learned growing up true? No. <laughs> right? So learn. Begin to question. Begin to learn for yourself. And so in this, what I would say is this. The argument, listen, Paul, he's writing. And so in the context of what I'm saying, the argument for me of why Paul wrote it is in the context of recipients. What if I told you this morning that Paul didn't write, Paul, this letter was not for the Ephesians Only. What if Paul wrote this as a circular letter for every single church in all of Asia Minor? And you're going, Asia Minor, Asia Minor, Asia. I've heard of Asia. Turkey. All of Turkey. Right? So if you were to go map-wise, I don't have one, I apologize. Mediterranean Sea, right? It's like this, and it kind of comes up like this, and the Aegean Sea is right here. And on one side you have Italy, and you go from Italy to Greece. And then you go, for, I'm going the right direction, by the way. I'm going east. And then, then I'm for you. And then I'm going from Greece to Turkey. It's a big rectangle, basically, like this, okay? And Ephesus was literally the first harbor town on the west coast of modern-day Turkey, what was called Asia Minor, okay? And then all around it, just within a couple of hours, was like Thyatira, You've got Thessalonica, which is really in Greece over here, right? But you can take a boat over there. You've got Colossae and Philippi and Galatia. All these little towns over here that have churches in them. And so what if Paul, while he's in prison, probably in Rome, is writing a letter? And in the letter, he's like, all right. 
Because Ephesus is the first town and honestly the largest and most influential, it's going to start there. And then couriers, you all know what those are, or then once they read it there, they're going to take it and then go to all the other churches all the way around so that we can take them in their infancy and teach them how to be a people and how to do church. Is identity creating. That's the whole purpose. And so my argument for you, and I'm not saying, well, my pastor said this. Don't go home and tell anybody that. No, you go home and study it for yourself, okay? And so what I'm saying is I think Paul wrote, but I think he recognized he was not writing to an individual, so he's not going to make it personal. How many of you write personal letters to massive groups of people? You don't do that. It doesn't make any sense, right? You write personal letters to personal people. And then if you're going to write to a large group, you use different language and you deal with it differently and you talk about it more in macro because what you find is that Paul is not dealing with individual specific issues or sin in the church. It's none of that in in Ephesians. It's more of a celebration. It's more of a teaching. It's more of a developing and more of a training because what would happen is the letter came into Ephesus. So why Ephesus? Let's do a snapshot of Ephesus. Ephesus was basically the Roman capital in Asia Minor. So you know Rome is in Italy. It's a long way over there, right? And so Ephesus basically is like Rome's capital in Asia Minor. It think less Atlanta and think more New York City. You had this massive, this is so you know history, right? This massive road that comes and ends right here at Ephesus. Basically think land trade route, right? It's massive. Like everybody, it's like, I mean, it's like, it's like I-10, I-75 with like eight lanes on both sides. You know what I'm getting? It's like one of these massive thoroughfares for trade. Everyone, so it ended right here. And then, because it's on the, on the West Coast, then you have every ship comes into the plural harbors in Ephesus. And so, I mean, it's like Wall Street and and then like sea trade routes and they meet right here in Ephesus. It's a massive city. Literally, it's like a capital of Rome in Asia Minor to the point that, that, I mean, it's like the center. Everything that happened in this region for the Roman Empire, think Julius Caesar, right? Etu Brute, right? Julius Caesar, the imperial cult, which is another way of saying they worshipped emperors, they worshipped the Caesar, right? All of that happened in Asia Minor right here in Ephesus. Seventh wonder of the world. The, the temple to the goddess Artemis slash Diana, the same people, they're just different names, right? Diana or Artemis. Like right here, people, like, if they're going to, you have tourists coming in with all their cameras and all that kind of stuff, right? They come, they bring up their travel buses, Right? In theory, back in the day, imagine what that was. Like they would come here to come say, oh, look at the temple to Artemis. We're going to come and worship. Do you know in Acts chapter 19, Paul has just left Greece. He comes in, comes into Ephesus and begins to proclaim the gospel. He's there for three years. And in those three years, revival happened. Acts 19 tells us that Everyone in Ephesus, think New York City, everyone in in Ephesus had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Acts 19 tells us that all of these people who practiced sorcery, who, who experienced, who, who expressed magic, right? They literally brought all of their magic scrolls, right? And they brought them to a point and they burned them and they tallied up the cost saying they probably all equal about 50,000 drachma. Drachma was one day's wages. Guys, that's a, that's a lot of money. A lot of value, right? Which shows that those many, those many scrolls came in, then there are a bunch of people who were highly spiritual, expressing magic and sorcery. And just so you know, there is a, there is a level of demonic power behind that that is legitimate, right? And so in this world, they're all coming in highly spiritual people. The imperial cult, man, this is the home of it. Right here, right here, in Ephesus, so people are worshiping the Caesar, and then you have the seventh wonder of the world, this worship, this place of worship for Diana, and we're told that a silversmith got so angry because they were building idols that they got mad at Paul, right? Because literally people were, they were, it was affecting trade and business because a primary trade and business was selling these silver, these silver idols of the goddess Diana. What's my point? Ephesus and this region, as, listen, Ephesus in this region does not believe in separation of church and state. I mean, these people are hyper spiritual. There's a good chance to get people who like, I mean, like you said last week, covering all their bases, got a little Caesar worship going. We love the emperor at Rome's awesome, right? Diana, just kidding. You're awesome over here. And then over here is like, and we're going to do our own little in-house magic and sorcery with all of these things that we bought. So highly, highly spiritual. Travel to third world countries today or developing countries, I mean, it's still, I mean, we are unique here, right, to our closed offness. It's like, I man, go anywhere else and it's open to the stuff. So that's what you have happening. And so it's not just, it is Ephesus, but Ephesus is a snapshot of what's happening in the entire region. All right. So Paul knows this. He spent three years here. He went to Philippi. He went to Colossae. He was in Galatia. Like, he spent time in all of these. He understands what's happening. And so when he's writing, it's important. He's writing with great tenderness. He's writing with compassion. But he's also writing with great conviction. He says, because the church is the hope of these cities. The church, the people of God, you are the hope of this city. And so he's writing, not because you have sin in your life. He's writing because he wants to train up the church and to celebrate who they are. This is really, really important. We have to begin to see this message. He is doing identity formation. Like you all get this. You remember, what if you just like had your kids and then you let them raise themselves. And all parents go, mm, mm, mm. that would not be good, Steve. I'm just telling you, right? It wouldn't be. Why? Because if you take an immature child and leave them to themselves, they're not going to be able to grow and to mature into the adult that they're called to be. And so you're talking adolescent church here, and Paul recognizes the tension. He recognizes their culture. He recognizes the tug of war that defines their life. He recognizes these dueling, these dueling realities we'll talk about of the life in the flesh, life in the culture, right, versus the life in the kingdom, the life of Jesus. And so he's coming saying, guys, we, 
you gotta, we gotta, we gotta form identity here. We gotta grow. We gotta, we gotta mature. We gotta grow. We gotta grow in our identity, knowing who we are, who you are now as the church, and to recognize you are not less than in the eyes of God. In the eyes of God, you are, you are children of God, and you are empowered by God. And so, if you were to take Two primary subjects, the message, and you had to like form it, kind of put it in two different sections. It'd be power and identity. The message, it's up on the screen. The message, power and identity. That's what we're talking about here. Two primary pieces, the power of God and identity. So what this morning we're going to dive into, let's dive into these two primary pieces. Power, number one, power. We have Jesus' power to redeem and the power of the saints in Christ. Number one, the power to redeem. The power to redeem. This is the message of the gospel. You've heard the the phrase, the gospel. The gospel as proclaimed by Paul in Ephesians. Listen, it challenges. This is really important. It challenges the easy believism of our present culture. And it speaks about a gospel that requires people to respond and to act. We come, listen, we, we are saved by grace, the work of God, through faith, through our belief. But then at that point, it requires us to engage. It requires us to respond to God and then to act. And so in the nature of this, right, believers have a responsibility to make choices, to change patterns of their lives, the Spirit's power that lives in them, not in their own strength, but through the power of the Holy Spirit and by His grace. And so the nature of that, what we're we'll talking about in the book of Ephesians, this is the power of the gospel, the power to redeem, the power of God and the movement of our lives and the movement of the church. And so the second part of that is then the power of the saints in Christ. We're saints, followers of Jesus, right? So Jesus is power to save and now the power of the saints who are in Christ. Apart from Christ, we have no power, but in Christ, his power in us, the work of the Holy Spirit like Harvest is talked about a second ago. Now we have the Holy Spirit power inside of us. So that's the nature. In Acts chapter 19, we see this, all the stirring in the, in Ephesus, which would be common to all of these cities, right? And they heard the gospel, all this crazy stuff happened. And the letter then wants to express the power of Jesus to, to heal, to cure diseases, to position himself and his followers as ones having authority over Satan, specifically sorcery and magic, and have power over their idols and over the imperial cult, right? To have power in their lives, right? To stand above the power of sin and to live the life that God's called them to live individually. But then think about it as we do it individually, then it happens. Happens corporately. And we're going to talk a lot about the oneness in the body of Christ. We're going to look at that here in a second. But it's the power of God in those moments. It's our inheritance we're going to learn. It's our inheritance. And so, power and identity. Power, the power to redeem, the power of saints in Christ. And the second part is identity. Who we are as God's children and who we are corporately as God's children in one family. And so this is really important. When you, I'm just going to be honest, most people in the church, when they think about faith, they think about their personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Right? They got saved. And that is, that is like 1% of God's expectation of the church. Right? You're one individual, and you immediately get saved. And what does he do? He plugs you into the body. Right? 
He plugs you into the body. So, so Jesus, when he first looked at you, you know who he first sees, honestly, is your place in the body. And then secondarily, he probably sees you. And here's the deal. You know he sees you both at the same time because he's God and he can do that. You know what I'm saying, right? Like there's a primary piece of the body first. The body, the church first. Secondarily then, this individual piece. And so what we find first then is who we are as God's children. One of the great tragedies I see today in the church of, uh, uh, the church is people living unaware of their identity as being children of God and they are unaware of the confidence and conviction that comes from this reality. As Paul opens the chapter, he speaks about adoption. I mean, you all know it's a really important deal. God chose us, right? He speaks of adoption and this new reality that is to define our lives, right? We become empowered and able to live the life that God intended for us to live in the Holy Family. And so we see we are children. We are adopted. And I think one of the things is, is we are, it's very easy for you to celebrate your neighbor's adoption and what that means for them. I think very, it's much more difficult to receive it for yourself. And to live in the reality of what it means for you to be loved and cherished as a child of God. Second part of this is God's children in one family. So you're God's children, like I said, in the body, one family. Ephesians is for the modern day. I mean, honestly, it describes human beings, their predicament, sin and delusion. And then God's reaching out to people to recreate and transform them, hear this, into a new society. We kind of stole that language directly from John Stott. This nature of us being a, a, a new society, like we, we're born into a society, like when by birth and then by spirit we're born into the society of God, a, a new society that he has for us, right? This family. And you understand, in our culture, our world is fractured by classism, sexism, and, and we've seen it recently by racism, and all of us know the pain. We, we know the enormity of these problems. But Ephesians holds up another model. One that destroys racism and division. For it tells of God providing a wholeness in Christ that binds us together. We'll find that they are challenged to put away all behavior that's inconsistent with the fact. Listen, hear this. They are challenged to put away all behavior that's inconsistent with the fact that they are now members of one another. Like, you, we all love the language of marriage, and the two shall become one. But in very real sense, when you give your life to Jesus, you now at least unite with and become connected, linked as one with every person beside you, no matter race or culture or history or religion or background, those who've given their lives to Jesus. That's what the story is. And here's the thing about it. You've got to recognize they're doing it well. They're doing it well. When Paul writes, and he's not coming and correcting them. He's, he's basically saying, you're doing this. Well done. In Ephesus, man, like... You recognize the story of Jews and Gentiles. Either you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. Right? There's one of the two. And Jews didn't like Gentiles. And Gentiles thought Jews were snooty and were rude and whatever mean. Right? So hold on. And they didn't like each other. They just kind of lived at war together. And their history is war and all this kind of stuff. And 
want, you just didn't like each other at all. And Jews, I mean, hated the Gentiles. And so high level, it's really, it's, it's extreme racism what's going on here, right? History and culture and skin tones and all those types of things are happening, right? And so then all of a sudden God says, hey, I got a great plan. In fact, it is part of the great mystery. I'm going to take these people who were not part of the family and I'm going to bring them in and make them part of the family. And guess what? You're going to have to get along. You're going to have to receive one, to accept one, to love one another because I'm your dad. I've adopted them all in and you're all adopted and you're all now part of my family under my roof with my rules, my house rules. And you're going to obey and you're going to get along and you're going to love one another and you're going to fight for one another. And you're not. And here's the deal. You're not going to make nationalism your priority. You're not going to make patriotism right and waving the flag of our people as the primary thing. And in my eyes, those have all melted away. They've all melted away. And there's really no patriotism if patriotism literally keeps you from loving the person who looks different and sounds different from you. There's really no such thing as nationalism and loving our nationality because that screams white supremacy and we don't like them. We don't agree with them. They're in sin. They're opposed to God. Well, if they say they're Christians, they're not. They're dying and going to hell if they literally believe that white supremacy is accurate and okay in God's plan to separate two peoples and put them apart. Seriously? If you disagree with me, you can leave because it's not Jesus. And we have to stand up when people are talking about that at your workplace. And they're like, oh, yeah, man, look what Trump did for us. This isn't a political thing, right? I'm just saying this is what people say. Man, he's made this way for us. And we want to right? And I'm like, let's say, no, 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 no. Jesus is first. There is no political system in the eyes of God. This is the kingdom of God. And you, cannot, you can't be Republican. You can't be Democrat. You are either Jesus or not. There's one kingdom, the kingdom of God. Well, I lean more. That's fine. You can lean more towards. But Republican submits itself, bows down to, and has to literally worship Jesus as the kingdom. And he's the king. And there's just one. And so this is what we find in Ephesians. They say in the church, we don't have racism. Man, we, we don't have two split. We don't have, a, we don't have a Jew church and a Gentile church over here. Man, we're just one church together, man. We're just worshiping Jesus together. We're so different. But, man, we have found unity in Christ, and we have sacrificed ourselves. One of the things, I, so I can find this phrase in here, I, I loved it. Um, yeah, it says, Christians will never again. And I love this phrase. I should have put it on a, as I quoted it. I'll do it for next service. But it said, Christians will never again. Hear this. This happened in America, guys. You know this. Christians will never again be served by disadvantaging a sister or brother or a lower class. We will never Never again be served by the disadvantage. We'll never look down upon anyone. In the eyes of Christ, man, we're all sisters and brothers. There is no class in the eyes of God. The scripture says, you know, there's neither male nor female, Jew or Gentile. We just see neither black nor white. There's one, one new family, and God's at the head. And so the letter speaks about the fractured nature of the culture, but the unity in the body of Christ. So there's power, power to redeem. There's power 
power in the context of the body of Christ, who we, who we are, empowered by the Holy Spirit. There is now unity as part of being individually brought into God's family and now also being part of the family as a whole. Let me just say this to you. As we dive into Ephesians... The plan is not to celebrate any people group or any nation above another. It's not to say America's the best. No, it's to say there's one kingdom and there is one Lord. And it's okay to love our country, but never in a way that we think that we're better than. Because Jesus is Lord. And we submit, even as a country, to him and his will and desire for us. And as we talk about our nation, in arguments that we make about what's best for our country, they always submit to what is best for God's people. And what is best for the oppressed, and what is best for the marginalized, and best for the forgotten. Our safety does not trump what is best for God's people and the oppressed of our world. And so when we have conversations about who we are, you have to recognize they have to be submitted to what is God's best Because when he sees the world, he does not see countries. He just sees people who are saved and people who are not saved. And that's what he sees. Neither Jew nor Gentile, Greek nor Jew, just people. And the plan of God is very simple. I want to wake people up to the fact. Wake people up to the fact. That I am Lord. Take it back history-wise, and I kind of said this this week, talking about Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee fought for the South. You all know that, right? He didn't want to. But he said, but i got to stay with my state. God did not lead him to that decision. He was in sin. He was in sin for choosing his state over actually what he believed in the kingdom of God as a man who said he was a follower of Jesus. And he will be held accountable for that. Because he did not listen to the Lord in that. He chose nationalism and patriotism first. That's a big deal. So, with that in mind, man, Steve, you just went like heavy into this piece. Why? Because it's actually the most practical thing that we're wrestling with in our community today. It is a message for today. And we have to wrestle with And not just look at my personal salvation. God saved you for the hurting, the broken, and the lost who don't know Christ. He would leave the 99 at church to go save the one who's not here. And that's his plan. Are we on board? Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you were Lord. And that has ultimate ramifications. Lord, it it affects what we believe. It affects what we read. It affects how we read. 
It affects what we watch on television and what movies we watch. It, it, it affects the relationships that we're in. It affects how we do our jobs. It affects how we, how we function at church. On, uh, and when we gather in, in, in a gathering like this, it, uh, it affects our marriages. It affects how we parent. It affects what kind of neighbor I am. It affects literally everything in our lives, Jesus. And Lord, I pray, Jesus, that you would awaken us. Because I feel like, Jesus, we're going to naturally get offended at things. You can't challenge that. Because, well, why? Why can't things be challenged? And I pray, Father, that you would awaken us to the fact that the study in Ephesians is not just to make us feel better. It's to challenge us. And to challenge how we live. Because, God, here's the thing. If we're not challenged and then embracing your plan, then our lives aren't really impacting anything or making a difference anywhere. Because the only way we, we make a difference is if we engage your plan. Because only your plan and following you and obedience to you that allows our lives to make a difference to anyone that we're around. And so, Father, I'm asking today, would you challenge us? pray, Father, you'd convict us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your job. Your role in our life is to convict the world of sin and of righteousness. To convict the world of what's wrong and of what's right. And Holy Spirit, we need you to lead, to guide, and direct us. And God, we pray, Lord, for this racism that God is just defining so much of our conversation today. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your spirit to empower us to be awesome at the church, embracing and engaging unity and loving every brother and sister around us from whatever culture they're from as equals. And God, may the church do so well that the government comes to us and say, how are you doing this? Because the church is supposed to be the prophetic voice to a broken culture into a broken government. Would you make us the prophetic voice that we're called to be as we embrace the plan of Jesus? We love you, Jesus. Amen. This morning, a lot of you have come and, and you need God to move. And so we have ministry teams that will be available, right? You came and you're like, that's all great, Steve, but I'm still hurting. I'm struggling, right? And so God wants to meet you this morning. And as we come into worship, I just encourage you to engage the Lord. Engage Jesus. Allow Him to begin speaking into your life, okay? Come and get prayer. Come to the altar. Just come before the Lord. Have an honest time with Him. Two, if I've challenged you this morning with anything I've said and you're a little bit frustrated, then ask yourself why. Is it because I'm wrong and you're right, or is it just because you don't like to be challenged? Either way, it requires a conversation with the Lord. I encourage you to have that conversation. Offering baskets right here for those who come with your offerings this morning before the Lord is this is an act of a gift and worship towards Him. And communion always available because we always want to celebrate the gospel that He's redeemed us, He saved us because He loved us as human beings. If you respond to the Lord leads this morning, I'll come back up here in a minute or two and I'll pray us out. And as you leave today, you will sign up for small groups.